In Jerusalem, A.D. 30, Jesus died on the cross, resurrected on the third day, and then ascended into heaven. Fifty days after Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles, giving them power, purpose, and a plan. And out of joy, the church was born. Empowered by the Spirit, Peter gave his first sermon, and 3,000 hearts were transformed. Hearing, receiving, and repenting, the young church walked in unity and garnered praise. Peter and John then continued to spread the gospel through preaching and miracles, and the church grew by 5,000. In AD 31, Stephen gave a powerful sermon, and the enraged crowd stoned him, making him the first Christian martyr. Around AD 34, on the road to Damascus, the Lord transformed the heart of Saul, a man who persecuted countless Christians, and Saul became Paul. In AD 44, King Herod Agrippa I executed the Apostle James and had Peter arrested. But an angel rescued Peter, leading him out of the prison. As the believers were scattered because of persecution, the center of operations for Christianity turned from Jerusalem to Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were sent out on their first missionary journey. On his final missionary journey, Paul traveled through Galatia, Phrygia, and Ephesus, encouraging the disciples in the cities. He then spent three months in Greece before traveling to Jerusalem, where he was arrested. Welcome to Acts. Christ's ministry continues our verse-by-verse journey through the fifth book of the New Testament, written by Luke, who wrote the third biography of Jesus. And it's Luke's perspective, his viewpoint of the history of the church from its beginning at the ascension of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it spread across the Roman Empire, and eventually he zeroes in on the ministry of a man named Paul. And in our story today, Paul is under arrest. He was um, worshiping in the temple, and a riot ensued, and the Romans rescued him, thinking he was an Egyptian revolutionary. And... Lo and behold, he wasn't. (laughs) There were people that were upset that he was preaching the resurrection of Christ. And at this point in the story, there was another attempt to preach, and another riot ensued, and then a third attempt to uh, speak to a council of Jewish leaders, and they tried to pull him in pieces, fighting over the resurrection. The Romans rescued him again. And so... The following night, verse 11 of Acts 23, the Lord stood by Paul and said, so here he is speaking in an audible voice, be of good cheer, or be encouraged, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, <laughs> it didn't go so well, but hey, he did it, right? You also, you must also bear witness at Rome. So there's a word of comfort and a word of edification, a word of exhortation. You've done good. You've, you've bore witness of me in Jerusalem. Now you're going to bear witness of me in Rome. As typical, though, prophetic words do not paint the whole picture. We prophesy in part, right? Even Jesus himself did not give the whole picture. Let's move on. Verse 12 illustrates that point. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. 
Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a great oath. It's pretty much putting a curse on themselves because they were going to fail. Under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. So are they backing down on the not drinking anything? You know, three days without drinking, you're, you're pretty, pretty much going to be dead. Verse 15. Now you therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So your last meeting with him didn't go so well. The Romans rescued him, asked for a second chance. And on his way there, 40 of us are going to take him out or we're not going to eat or drink. Verse 16, so when Paul's sister's son, can we say nephew? When Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions, it's a Roman officer, to him and said, take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell you. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner. That's the first place we see him called this. Paul's got a new hat, a new job description, and he's going to embrace it and call himself Paul the prisoner of Jesus Christ. How can he do that? The Romans are the one imprisoning him. Well, recognizing the fact that God is sovereign and all things are under his authority, he literally is captive to Jesus more than to the Romans. Do you see that? Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you, and he has something to say to you. Now, this guy's really young. Look at what happens, verse 19. Then the commander took this young man by the hand, went aside and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed. No, I won't do that. The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. Verse 21, but do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. The thirstier and the hungrier they get, the more they want to kill the guy. So when... The commander, so the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, listen to this, prepare 200 soldiers. Can we say infantry? 70 horsemen. Can you say cavalry? And 200 spearmen. Can you say artillery? To go to Caesarea. Can you say 60 miles away? At the third hour of the night. Can you say 9 p.m.? And provide mounts to set Paul on. Can you say horseback ride? And bring him safely to Felix the governor. Can you say pass the buck? He wrote a letter in the following manner. Now, Roman officers weren't thrilled to serve in what was then known as Palestine. The Jews were not submissive to authority that was pagan. And so it was a brutal assignment, 
And no doubt if they had failed here, who knows, who knows what got them assigned here? Maybe failure at some other place. If they failed to impose Roman authority here, maybe they would be shipped to the outer banks of Siberia. I don't know. But Claudius, we'll find out his name, wanted to get this man off his hands and pass him up to higher authority. So here's the letter. Claudius Lysias, that's who the letter's from, or Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor, Felix. And we're not talking about a cat. Greetings. Now listen to this lie. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. That's true. Coming with the troops, I rescued him. And here's a lie. Having learned that he was a Roman. Lie. <laughs> he thought he was an Egyptian. He found out Paul was Roman when he was going to torture him to get the truth out of him. You know, get to the bottom of this whole problem. Verse 28, when I wanted to know a reason they accused him, I tortured him. No, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. This story kind of reminds me of Jesus. Falsely accused, right? People wanting him dead. And Roman officials passing him around. Then the soldiers, verse 31, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night, talk about a night ride, to Antipatris. Here's the journey from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Antipatris is about 35 miles from Jerusalem. These guys marching three miles an hour would have marched for 12 hours or less. What a trudge. Now, going from Jerusalem to Antipatris isn't bad. It's downhill. But the foot soldiers had to turn around and go right straight back. Don't you know they were tired? The next day, they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. <laughs> when they came to Caesarea and had delivered to the governor the letter, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, that was north there, north of Syria, up into southern Turkey there, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's Praetorium. So now he takes a night ride from some stinky barracks to a palace. Herod the Great had built a palace there. A seaside praetorium. What, what an extreme. But Paul was on the adventure of his life because the word of the Lord was going to be fulfilled. Did he go directly from here into chapter 24 into um, Rome? No, he was here for two years. That's for another Sunday. What in the world does this have to do with the price of tea in Granbury, Texas? What does it have to do with me? Well, Paul wrote to Timothy that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it's my belief 
All Scripture can be used for teaching and correcting our lives and exhorting us to walk as we seek to fulfill the calling that Jesus has given each of us. So in our journey through Acts, what do we have to glean from these verses? Well, as I meditate on the Word, several things stood out to me as I put myself in Paul's shoes. That's the best way to understand the Word, is put yourself in the shoes of the writer as well as the shoes of the character in the story. So I'm going to speak to you today on the subject, what we need, five things we need for fulfilling our mission. We all have a mission in life, and that is to continue the ministry of Jesus. Whether it is in the, the entertainment industry, or whether it is in agricultural business and farming and ranching, what is it about the ministry of Jesus that you're fulfilling in serving in those capacities? First of all, to fulfill our mission, we need to know our assignment and pursue our assignment. And the first thing we are assigned to do as believers, and out of this thing comes all the rest, and that is to draw near to him. Follow me is the first command he gave his followers. Obviously, that involves repentance. That involves believing on him. But it involves pursuing him. And out of your pursuing him will come revelation as to what he wants to do. He's not going to tell you what to do in your life before that gets, takes place in your life. Otherwise, the work of the Lord will take precedent over the Lord of the work. He wants a relationship with us. And so Paul had a visitation from Jesus, which had happened before in his sleeping. Maybe he prayed before he went to bed. Who knows? We know that when you're in great pressure under the fear of death, it's real easy to pray. It's real easy to draw near to God. And so from this point on in the story, he's walking in the footsteps God has called him to just as he had done earlier when he was planning churches. There was that prophetic word at that meeting in Antioch, where the Lord said, through prophecy, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work whereunto I have called them. And so in our own walk with the Lord, what has he assigned us to do? First of all, is to follow him, is to pursue him. We're promised, the brother of Jesus gave us his promise, if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. So, the following night, after this ruckus with the Sanhedrin, the Lord visits him, and tells him, be encouraged, for you've testified for me in Jerusalem, but you must also bear witness at Rome. And as I said earlier, prophetic words do not give the whole picture. They just give you a framework. You have to be careful to not allow your imagination, your excitement, your zeal to fill in the blanks. Otherwise, you could become disillusioned. Well, God promised me, and look at this. His promise still stands. So look at, look at this example in Paul's case. The next verse. When it was day, the next morning, some of the Jews banded together, bound themselves under an oath, saying they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. Could be 50 people, 45, 44, it doesn't matter. The point is, people were going to set themselves out on a quest for Paul not to fulfill this prophetic word. Until his dreams came to pass, Joseph in the Psalms, it says, the word of the Lord tested him. So you may be sitting in this room today a little confused about 
a word God gave you, you know the Lord spoke to you about something and it hasn't come to pass. Either God didn't speak it to you or he did. And the opposition is just, it's just happening right now. In Paul's case, he did make it to Rome. We'll see it later on in the book. But between Rome and the present tense, between the now and the not yet, are things we walk through, people that are not excited about God's will being done in our life. A few chapters later, he's testifying to another Roman authority, and he says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He was able to stand and boldly say, I was not disobedient to what God had called him to do. Now, you need to know this. What God has called you to do is absolutely impossible to do in your own strength. This is why it's so important to draw near to him to determine what he wants you to do. But in drawing near to him, you receive the strength you need to obey him. And it's a daily walk of drawing near to him to obey him each and every day. Otherwise, you'll just take off and build your own kingdom and do something that won't bear fruit in the long run. So it's all about seeking him and finding his assignment for you and then pursuing that. Our mission may include leaving our families. It may require that. As a kid, for four years, my family was called. I was nine years old when we left, 13 when we came back, to leave our families behind and serve in Liberia, West Africa, and build a congregation there that's still going to this day. And it was sad, but it was awesome. And with that, obedience comes blessings. Peter told Jesus in Mark 10, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, As surely I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the kingdoms who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. So we're promised a hundredfold return in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Houses with brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. So that preacher on the TV promising you a hundredfold return if you'll send him a hundred dollars because he needs ten thousand dollars he needs to obey his own preaching by sowing $100 so he can get $10,000. The promise of the hundredfold return is this kind of promise. It's made to those that leave everything. It doesn't mean God won't bless someone giving $100, but there's no promise in the Word of God of a hundredfold return for someone giving $100. The promise Jesus gave with persecution is for those who have forsaken all to follow him. And sometimes that, that happens. You determine to follow Jesus, your family will cut you off. They will deny you. They will take you out of the will because you want to serve the Lord. It happens. And if you're going to pursue his will, you have to be willing to leave them behind. Pray for them. He maybe can do a miracle. Paul's family, we'll see in a few minutes, was praying for him, I believe. God did some miracles in his life. Also, though, we need to include our families whenever it is possible. A lot of cults lead people to cut their families off. No, don't you dare cut your family off. 
But if following Jesus and his will causes something like that to happen because you're standing for righteousness and integrity and you will not buckle down to falsehoods, so be it. But in the meantime, try to include your family. You know, nepotism is a problem. I mean, if you visit a church website and everybody on staff has the same last name, nepotism is not a good thing. But being related to people should not be a penalty either. Right? Look at this. Paul's nephew serves his ministry. If Paul had cut his family off, you think they'd risk their neck? I mean, this kid's risking his life. Commander hears this and says, okay, you told me I'm going to do something about it. Don't you dare tell anybody else. In Romans 16, Paul mentions 33 names. The last chapter of Romans, he's wrapping the book up. He mentions 33 names of people that he's either sending greetings to or greetings from. And with almost all the name, he, he gives adjectives of affection. My beloved, my fellow laborer. But some of them, six of them, he calls his kinfolk, his relatives. In verse 7, he says, salute Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. They were either apostles or they were known by the apostles, and they were believers before Paul was. So no doubt they were praying for him. And they, too, were suffering for the cause of Christ. And he says, send greetings to my, to my relatives. Salute Herodian, in verse 11, salute Herodian, my kinsmen. Greet them that be of the household of narcissists, which are in the Lord. Now, if you were of the household of narcissists, if that was your last name, were you called narcissists? I don't know. It's back to the sermon. Verse 21. Timotheus, my, fellow, my work fellow, we know who that is, that's Timothy, and Lucius and Jason and Sassipater, my kinsmen, salute you. So he had relatives with him. So God uses families for his glory. John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. Mary and Jesus were mother and son. Jesus and James and Jude were brothers. James and John were brothers and cousins of Jesus. Peter and Andrew were brothers. Barnabas and John Mark, the guy who wrote this second book of the New Testament, were relatives. Philip and his daughters served in the ministry right there in Caesarea. So, if you're able to serve in ministry with your relatives, that is awesome. But if in ministry you have to leave them behind to let God deal with them, do it. You will be blessed with more brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers. Notice Jesus didn't say, and wives. (laughs) He didn't say it. It's in there. Check it out. (laughs) He knew someone who likes to abuse the Scriptures would take that and use that to tear their families out. A fourth point, we need to clear up our perceptions. The way we see things determines the way we see. And the way we see actually determines what we see. You can be prejudiced or biased 
And your eyes will filter out everything that contradicts what you're saying is the truth. Someone will tell you the truth and you'll say, yes, but. Watch out for that. Jesus said in Matthew 6, the lamp of the body is the eye. Now we know the eye isn't a lamp. You know, our eyes receive physical light, right? They don't project physical light. So he's not talking about optometry here. He's talking about a principle of perception. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Everybody thinks they have 20-20 vision, spiritually speaking. Everybody thinks the way they see things is the way it is. Well, I just tell it the way it is. Well, you may not. You may be telling it the way you see it. And the way you see it is not often, the way I see it at least, is not often the way it is. And why he said to take heed, be careful. How great is that darkness is prejudice, bias, bad perception can be blinding. You can be as wrong as wrong can be and just can't see it. Because you think you've got light, and what your light is actually darkness. We need to clear up our perceptions and misperceptions. I'm saying the same thing twice. The way you don't see things, you need to correct it and be open to truth, open to the Holy Spirit. Maybe somebody has lied to you and skewed your opinion about a certain situation or even a person. Someone has messed with the jury of your soul. They tampered with your stuff. And so you need to be careful that your perceptions are not misperceptions. In Luke 11, Jesus said, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are bad, your body also is full of darkness. Luke eleven thirty four, verse 35. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. Another translation says... Make sure that the light you think you have is actually not is not actually darkness. We need to clear up all perceptions. Tell somebody all of them. All perceptions and misperceptions. This means we need to be teachable, we need to be learning, we need to be trusting the Lord to help us. Back to the blessed are the flexible thing. When we're flexible, we're, it doesn't mean we don't have a backbone, but when we're flexible, we're teachable. We won't get bent out of shape or broken. Here is some scientific proof of this very issue. Visual perception made simple. Our eyes are like windows to the world. We observe the smallest fluff on the rug and the farthest stars in the sky. At a stadium, we track the flight path of a soccer ball and perceive millions of different gradations of color. Because we have two eyes, we also have two optic nerves. These cross paths and travel from the interbrain through a kind of substation straight into the visual cortex. In the visual cortex, the information from both eyes gets processed filtered, interpreted, compared with existing patterns, and then reassembled into a complete picture. Other parts of the brain associate these elements with experiences and emotions. 
Anything missing is filled in. All of this usually happens unconsciously. However, important stimuli attract our attention. For example, if we recognize a familiar face in a crowd, we look more closely. And that irrelevant fluff on the rug? We ignore it. So actually, we don't see with our eyes, we see with our brains. And through visual perception, each human being paints a unique mental picture. Where there are gaps, we subconsciously fill it in. I raised my kids begging for their forgiveness a lot of times because, as that will tell you, I would jump to conclusions. I would think I would see an act of rebellion or an infraction of some port, and I would just jump and fill it in. And thank God they're very forgiving. And they, If anything, I taught them to be forgiving. Speaking of perception, let's talk about journalism for a moment. There is such a thing as journalistic bias, and I think it's a constant job of editors to make sure, if they're a good editor, make sure bias isn't skewing the picture because it determines, the way we see determines what we see a lot of times. So if a journalist was reading this story and reporting on it in the Daily Times, what would they say? Maybe they would say, it sucks to be Uncle Paul, nephew foils plot to kill mother's brother. Based on how they see it, maybe they could do that. Put words in the nephew's mouth. Could apostle be deceived? Did Jesus visit him or did he eat too much pizza? Did God really say? Smelly barracks to seaside palace. Paul enjoys horseback riding on all night safari. Incarceration or protective custody. It all depends on how you look at it. You have a choice to be an optimist or a pessimist. None of us want to be a naive Pollyanna, but do you want to be a negative Billy Bob? Where nothing good ever happens to you, my life sucks, this is the way it always is. If you embrace that, that becomes your reality. You have a choice to make. How am I going to perceive things in light of the love of God? In light of the ministry of Jesus being continued, how should we see things? I would say, viewing it from that standpoint, this story could be called protective custody. But if Paul was a whiner, he would say, my rights, my rights are being violated. I haven't even been convicted yet. But he knows that he's got a calling to go to Rome, and this is how God's going to do it, and he's going to protect him all the way. I mean, he has the best protection available for free. He didn't have to mail out a letter to his partners, you know, we're under great threats, and we need to hire a security company. Can you please send in your best offering now? God will give you a hundredfold return. The final point, we need to fully trust. If we're going to fulfill our mission, trust is so important. Fully trust in the ability and authority of Jesus. There's two Greek words in the New Testament related to this point. It's the word dunamis, which means power. 
and the word exousia, which means authority. Jesus has power and authority. We have law enforcement here today who has power on his hip and a sign of authority on his chest. The authority is to exercise the power if needed. And we need to fully trust in the power and authority of our Lord Jesus. Jesus told Paul, Be of good cheer, for as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. Remember when he told the disciples as they got in a boat, let's go over to the other side. That was authority speaking. And then he falls asleep and they freak out at all the circumstances that rise up between where they left and where they were headed. He wakes up, calms the sea, and then rebukes them for their lack of faith. If they're going to fully fulfill the ministry of Jesus in their lifetime, in their lives, they had to trust in his ability as well as his authority. The same goes for us. I'm going to read you just a handful of scriptures that you may not even know are in the Bible. But they're there, and you can take them to the bank, and the truth that is in them can bring comfort during dark seasons of your life. And you and you wonder, what in the heaven is going on? Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. So don't sweat it. He's got it all under control. Romans 9.22, What if God, what if, God desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. God's not blind. He sees everything. If anybody's got the right perception, he does. What if he has a purpose in all this nasty opposition you may be facing? Romans 11. For of him and through him and to him are all things. Tell someone everything. Everything is of him and through him and to him. To whom be glory forever. Amen. This is a perception for life. This is a lens through which to look at the trials that you're living in. Everything is of him and through him and to him. To whom be the glory forever. Lord, I don't know how it's going to work out, but I know it's going to work out. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8 says, We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God foreordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If the wicked people in the world knew what God was up to, they wouldn't have done what they did. Revelation 4.11, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. You are worthy. Thou art worthy, thou art worthy, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, glory and honor, glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things created, 
Thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure they were created. Thou art worthy, O Lord. That song fits in every single circumstance. Closing illustration. This is a friend of mine, one of my heroes, John Parks. Currently pastor of Ashford Community Church, which is an international thing. They have services there in, I think, eight languages now, 20 nationalities of part of the congregation and growing. And the English part of the church is called Ashford Community Church. Back in the 90s, he and some leaders went on a mission trip to India. And while there, somehow they got in trouble with the law and were thrown in jail. Charges were trumped up against them worthy of death. In fact, it was, they were accused of seven different capital crimes. And at night, they would move them from one prison to the other. It was a nightmare that lasted, when he tells the story, between seven to ten days. He does it, they just lost track of time of how long they were in there. The city of Houston caught wind of it, KSBJ, Christian Radio there, great station, called people to prayer. There was prayer at, the, at City Hall, John Bazzano, First Baptist Dallas, led a prayer rally for him. The saints of God were crying out. And seven to ten days later, they were released. But before they were released, here's what happened. They wound up being taken to four different prisons. And the fourth one, when they arrived, it was obvious it was a long-term prison. And they were released into a prison yard. And here these brothers are, some were Indians and some were Americans, standing there not knowing what they're facing. And he said this gang of men who were obviously homosexuals began to approach them, and it wasn't looking good. He said, we formed a circle, and we began to sing, the whole earth is filled with his glory. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Holy is the Lord, the whole earth. They, they were singing that song, and about that time, the guards noticed what was happening, came down and took them out of the yard and put them in a place by themselves till the day they were finally released. So you cannot tell him that worship does not have power. If nothing else, it will correct your perception. That's why we love to worship is our perceptions get clouded by the dust and the, the spiritual pollution that's in the world and the, and the cloud of our circumstances. As we worship the Lord, we, we see things from his perspective. The whole earth, the whole earth is filled with his glory. That's what creatures in heaven say. Angels, have you read the news? But from their perception, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you take your word and that you would apply it to our lives in such a way that we rise above our circumstances, the circumstances of discouragement, for those who have quit and dropped out of the assignment you've given them, I pray, Lord, they would take up their cross again and follow you. I pray, Lord, you would draw us near to you for the purpose of just drawing near to you. 
And Lord, out of that, Lord, may we gain new perspective, new perception. May our faith be refreshed and our hope restored. In Jesus' name. Lord, we declare today, in spite of how it looks, the whole earth is filled. Jesus Christ, my living